Good evening, Harvest. Thank you for this privilege of bringing God's Word to you this evening. Very grateful to your pastors and elders for this invitation, and I've thoroughly enjoyed worshiping with you this morning as well. Look forward to continuing in God's presence this evening. Will you open your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm number 17? Psalm number 17, uh, a prayer of David. And we'll read from verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness." When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His own holy Word. We want to focus our attention this evening to the last words in this psalm, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Total satisfaction guaranteed. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, you've maybe read it, you've maybe even said it. It's the kind of phrase that's often attached to marketing materials, commercials, advertisements for cars, and vacations, and clothes, and 
restaurants, and, and many other things and experiences. Total satisfaction, guaranteed. And it's saying to us, you taste this, you get this, you do this, and you will be filled full. You, you will just, you will feel perfect. You'll feel complete. There's nothing like this in all the world. And many of us have been taken in. We've been duped. We've tried. We've believed. And we've been desperately, painfully disappointed. Well, maybe some of you came into the Christian life with that expectation, total satisfaction, guaranteed. That's certainly how the gospel is presented in some circles today. Sign up for this, and everything will just be perfect from now on. You will be filled, you'll be complete, you'll be happy, you'll be successful. And if you came into the Christian faith with such a promise, you are going to be disappointed if you haven't been already. And that's really what the psalmist is struggling with in this psalm. He's, he's looking around, and he's comparing his life with the life of unbelievers. And he's looking at his own life, and he sees suffering and persecution. And he looks at the unbelievers, and he sees success and satisfaction. And it's painful. It's agonizing. How can this be? Is there a solution? Is there a way through? How do we deal with reality, the reality of suffering and even persecution in the Christian life? That's the question the psalmist wrestles with, and he comes up with an answer. And his answer is this, we overcome suffering by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end of the Christian life. We overcome or we endure or we face, we press through suffering by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end of the Christian life. I want to look at two insights then that lead us to that truth, two insights that are brought before us in this psalm. And the first is this, the satisfaction of the wicked, the unbeliever, is limited. The satisfaction of the unbeliever is limited. Now, Sometimes when we try and talk to an unbeliever about the gospel, or maybe we try and preach, we might say something like this, the unbelieving life is an empty life. It's totally unsatisfying. You will never be filled. And sometimes unbelievers can hear this, and they say, that's not true. And some of us who remember when we were unbelievers, also say, that's not true. And maybe you're an unbeliever here tonight, and you're saying, 
that's not true. I'm actually quite happy. I, I'm, I feel quite satisfied. Uh, things are not as bad as that. And they're right. The Bible teaches us that some unbelievers can find some satisfaction for some time. That's the reality. That's the truth. And, and that's what David here is, is facing up to in this psalm. You see it ex especially towards the end when he starts describing uh, the unbelieving and the wicked. And, and he, he starts off by describing them with two terms. He calls them, in verse 14, men of the world. Men of the world. And he's saying these are people, men and women, uh, whose, whose domain, whose, whose primary focus, whose, whose concern is all about this world, this place, this everything that we can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell, men, people of this world, of the here. And then they're described, if we just go on a little bit further, as those whose portion is in this life. So, they're men of this world, and they're men of this life. They're men of here, and they're men of the now. This is what they are all about. They're about this world, and they're about time, this, this experience of life here below. And, and how, how do they experience life here below? Well, he tells us here. Um, he says they're filled. They are, they're satisfied in three particular ways. He says their portion or their, their stuff is of this life. And then he says, you fill their womb with treasure. And, and the word for womb there is, is really maybe better translated stomach. And, and it's really speaking of the satisfaction of the belly, of, of getting ourselves filled with all the good things of this life. The, the belly, the stomach in, in the Hebrew is often used for the, the place of, of the satisfaction of the senses. And he's saying, these, these men have their senses satisfied. They're filled. And then he says, they're filled with children. They're satisfied with children. And then he says, they, they're filled with an inheritance. They leave their abundance, and it means their overflow. They don't just have enough. It's, it's overflowing. They've got more than enough, more than they can use. And and so they leave this overflowing abundance to their children. You see how the psalmist is looking and going, they look pretty happy to me. They're filled with stuff. They are satisfied in their senses. They have lots of kids. And they've got so much that even when they die, there's plenty to share out amongst those left behind. The unbelievers have some satisfaction for some time in some things. But it's limited. It's limited especially in terms of duration or time. Because notice what he says, and it's, it's hinted at really, they are men of the world. They have their portion in this life. 
So he's beginning to say, look, whatever they have, it's, it's, it's really in this zone, in this time. But then he makes it very explicit when he says, they leave. They leave. So they're in this world, they're in this time, but eventually they leave this world and they leave time. They have some satisfaction for some time, but it's limited time. However long they have, it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last beyond this world. It's not going to last beyond this life. They leave their abundance. In other words, they leave, and now, when they've left, they have nothing. They have nothing. They've left it all behind. They leave their abundance to their children. They were absolutely packed, full to the brim of everything possibly satisfying, but now, emptiness hollowness, nothingness. They leave, and they have nothing. You see how we can sum up this insight by saying that unbeliever satisfaction is limited. However great, however enjoyable, it's limited. If only we could get that perspective. We, we, we get focused on this world, we forget the world to come. We get focused on this time, and we forget eternity. We get focused on the present, and we forget the future. And, and the psalmist is calling us to, to face up to, yes, satisfaction, but how limited it is. And then he turns to his second insight. The believer's satisfaction will be, notice future tense, the believer's satisfaction will be total. It will be complete. And he does that. He brings that home to us really by his first words in verse 15. He says, as for me, as for me, he's, he's been zoomed in on the unbelieving, wicked, and he's focused on all that they have, all that they enjoy, all they're satisfied with. Then he sees them depart and leave it all behind, and he says, not for me. This is a great contrast he's painting. He's saying they can do that, they can be that, they can have all that, but as for me, but I'm, I'm different to this. That is not me. Verse 14 is not me. He looks at everything the worldly man or woman has, and he says, no thanks. Not for me. That's not what I want. That's not what I'm focused on. And, and, and he, looks, he looks at their much, and he looks at his little, and he says, I wouldn't exchange places for everything in the world. Here's a man who, if you were to come up to David and say, David, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a possibility for you. You're a believer. 
How about you give up your faith for one second? You can have your faith back again in the next second, but give it up for one second, and you can have the whole world. You can have whatever you want. Name your price. Millions, billions, trillions, whatever you want. All you need to do is say, I am not a believer. And you only have to do it for one second. Would you trade? Would you take that? The psalmist wouldn't. He says, as for me, it's not even a choice. That, that doesn't even like register for a split second. I'm totally disinterested in that. I wouldn't give up this for a split second, not for all the money in the world. No. He says, when I look at what you have, it's like a mountain of feathers. You can keep that. I'm looking towards a mountain of gold. The believer's satisfaction will be total. And he goes on to describe the four elements of that total satisfaction that is guaranteed to the Christian. I want to look at them here with you. First of all, he says, I will be satisfied when I awake. Verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. He's seen the unbeliever awake, and he's seen the shock and the horror when the unbeliever awakes, and he's got nothing. It's a terrible awakening. He closed his eyes in this world in view of plenty, and he opens his eye in the next world, and there's nothing good and plenty bad. But not the psalmist, he says, when I awake. He, he's looking ahead, and, and he's seeing the moment after death as an awakening. This isn't referring so much to the the resurrection, when the believer's body will be raised again, it's speaking about the believer's death. It's been contrasted with the unbeliever's death. And, and it's speaking of the moment when the believer's soul leaves his body, leaves her body, and goes into heavenly glory. And it's the first, the first word that comes to his mind when he anticipates that moment is this, awakening awakening. Why does he say that? Well, he says that because he knows that when he experiences that moment, it's going to make this whole life seem like a dream. It's going to feel as if he was semi-conscious his whole life, compared now to the consciousness he enjoys in heaven. It's, it's as if he looks at all that he's been and done and experienced here below. Compared with this moment, it's like as if it was a, a dozy dream, as if he was living in a, in a confusion, in a state of, of semi-consciousness, if not almost unconsciousness. When the believer's soul comes into glory, 
There is a, he enters, she enters a whole new level of consciousness, of awareness, of, of experience, such that it's compared to this life like waking up and, and coming into this, this quantum leap of awareness and consciousness. That's the first part of the believer's satisfaction. I will awake. It's going to be so clear. I'm going to feel so lively. I'm going to feel more alive than I've ever felt before, as if almost this world was a living death. I will be satisfied when I awake. But, but there's a second ingredient to this satisfaction, and it's this, I will be satisfied when I see Christ. As for me, he says, I shall behold your face. I shall behold your face. And we know the face he's speaking about. In the previous psalm, he's spoken about his resurrection hope. He's spoken about spending eternity, enjoying pleasures forevermore. He's speaking of seeing the Lord Jesus whom he saw by faith and now sees by sight. He sees face to face. Up till now, it's been through a glass in a mirror, dimly, darkly, confusingly, catching the odd glimpse here and there, now and then. But now I see His glorious face. What a face to wake up to. I'm sure sometimes you've seen a, a baby wake up to their mom there. They're in this deep sleep, and they're beginning to come to. The mom goes into the, the bedroom and the nursery and just sits there with the baby, and maybe she puts her face up near the baby and sees little eyes flickering and struggling to open, and eventually they open and they, they focus on the mom's face, and you see this big smile, this recognition, this safety, this sense of, oh, this is the one who loves me more than anyone else in this world. And that's what he's envisaging here in a similar way. When he opens his eyes, he's going to see, she's going to see a face that loves him or her more than any other face in all the world. It's going to be the holiest face we've ever seen. It's going to be the happiest face we've ever seen. Don't think we'll be waking up to a frown if we're believers. We're going to be waking up to the biggest, broadest smile we have ever seen in our lives. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's going to be the, it's going to be the friendliest face I think we've ever seen. You know, some faces are friendly. Some of us, unfortunately, don't have very friendly faces, but you know, sometimes you see one of these faces, it's just really friendly, you're drawn to it. And this is going to be the friendliest face we've ever seen. It's going to be a familiar face. Yes, we've seen by faith, we've never laid our eyes on the physical, literal face of Christ while we've lived in this world. We don't know what color of eyes He'll have. 
what color of skin he'll have. We don't know what shape his face will be and, and things like that. We've never seen these things, and yet when we see him, we'll know him. We're not going to wake up and say, who are you? It's going to be instant recognition. That same moment we awake, it's him gazing. We're gazing into his face. You see how we can be so satisfied? How we will be so satisfied? I shall behold, and it's really the word for gazing. It's not, okay, you can have a glimpse, then you move on. It's, you just don't stop. I don't know how that works out. But it's not, you know, sometimes you might go to a, maybe a big auditorium, a, a concert, or a speech by a politician, and, and, and you're maybe in, you know, the back rows, and you just see this tiny little dot of, a, of the face on the stage, and you can't really no idea what they look like close up especially if there's none of these jumbotrons around. And, but it's not going to be like this. It's not, the believer's not going to wake up and Christ is going to be a dot on the horizon, a distant, tiny figure that you just wonder if you can almost make out. No. We'll behold His face close up. The loveliest, most beautiful face we have ever seen. That will satisfy, won't it? But then there's a third element to his satisfaction, and it's this I will be vindicated. I shall behold your face in righteousness. And I believe this is really speaking of the declaration of righteousness that the believer will experience. Again, the moment, the very moment they awake. It's not that Christ is going to keep us waiting, hanging on, wondering. No, as soon as we awake, as soon as we see His face, we will hear His voice vindicate us. And this is what is incredibly satisfying to the psalmist, because if you, if you read the whole psalm, he, he is falsely accused. He is, he is misrepresented. He is, he is unjustly persecuted. And he's appealing, especially in the early words of the psalm. He's in private here. He's in the secret place, and he's pleading with the Lord. He's crying. Three times it says, I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. This is agony for the believer. Every believer here knows this to some degree, or you will eventually. Every believer, and, and Christians in general, are misrepresented. It doesn't have to have our particular name on it with a false accusation. We see it all the time in the media, don't we? And, and the way we're misrepresented in, in politics and in, the, in films and movies and, and just in the general culture. There's a cultural persecution that gets us down, that wears us down, that pulls us down and that makes us cry out, this is so unfair. But whether it's, it's personal or cultural, whether it's bodily persecution or that more mental, spiritual persecution, the believer is going to be declared righteous. Christ is going to stand with every single believer that comes into heaven and says, 
See this believer? She is perfect. I cleared her of all charges. This isn't God coming to the psalmist as in the early part of this psalm and vindicating him in his conscience. He's got that. He appeals to the Lord. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tasted me. You find nothing. And that's a great comfort to the suffering, misrepresented believer. We can appeal to God in secret and pray and say, Lord, you know this is not true. You know this is unfair. And we can have the Holy Spirit come into our conscience and assure us and, and comfort us and, and strengthen us. And, and we go forward strong again that we have a conscience clear of all offense. But this is something much more. This isn't just in the court of our own consciences. This is in the, the court of heaven. And it's a universal declaration that every single believer will enjoy in righteousness, vindicated, declared right, cleared of all charges, false and true. That at times is incredibly satisfying in prospect. But then there's a fourth element. I will awake, I will see Christ, I will be vindicated, but then fourthly, I will be like Christ. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And however satisfying these previous three elements were, this is the ultimate. When we see Him, we shall be like Him. As soon as we see Him, like Him. As soon as we awake, His likeness is upon us in an incredibly satisfying, thrilling, exciting way. You know, we, as Christians, we want to be like Christ, don't we? And we strive, and, and we battle we pray, we fight temptation, we plead for growth, and, and we inch or millimeter forward. Maybe every year or two we might feel we've, we've made a fraction of progress. But here, the job is done. It's finished. It's completed. And it's effortless. It's, it's flawless likeness and it's effortless likeness. We didn't do anything here. We didn't contribute to this. This is something He does. He makes us like Him. What a moment. What a day that will be. We'll, we'll look at ourselves. Flawless. It'll be stunning. It's true, our bodies will be transformed from these lowly bodies to be made like to His glorious body, but this is, this is speaking more of the, the spiritual part of us, the soul, the personality. And, you know, to be free of lust, to be free of, of malice, to be free of temptation, 
to be free of depression, to be free of anxiety, to be free of, of everything that gets us down this world, to be free of conflict, to be made whole. And, and I think that's really, you know, as you, as, you, as you get older in this life, you realize we're all weird. We're all abnormal. You know, we, we talk about personality disorders. We've all got a personality disorder. Just some of us know it, and some of us don't. <laughs> we are, we're fractured, we're cracked, we're, we're unstable, we're, 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 there, there's a twist in us all, and you can't get rid of it. You can't, just, you can't straighten yourself out. But in this moment, perfectly straight, wholeness, disorders gone, the cracks are healed, to have a whole human personality, that's going to be satisfying. As whole as Christ's personality, that's going to be satisfying. That's why he says, I will be satisfied. You see why I said at the beginning, we overcome suffering by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end. And notice that little word sampling. I haven't stressed it up to this point. Let me stress it here. I'm not saying it's all future. It's mainly future. But we can have samples of it here in the midst of suffering. It's like there's an ocean ahead of satisfaction, of the purest, clearest water. And by faith, by meditating on passages like this, believing passages like this, it's as if we get a little thimble, a little cup of water, a little sample of that satisfaction brought from that future heavenly reservoir of satisfaction. Christ says, just have a little taste of this. Just, just, just taste this. Just sample it. Just let it be like a little appetizer. And even like the Lord's Supper this morning, and God often uses that to give us that foretaste of, of this future heavenly total satisfaction. This will get us through suffering. This will help us overcome. This will help us endure. This will help us push through. This will help us bear it, face it, accept it by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end. What a hope. This will push you through day by day. Why not make that your motto going forward? I will be satisfied. I will be satisfied. I will be satisfied. And, and, and anticipate that moment when you will say this, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. You're going to look at yourself, believer, and you're going to go, wow, look at me. And then you're going to go, wow, look at him. And he's going to look at you and go, look at you. This is my work. This is my triumph. This is my satisfaction too. He will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It's mutual. It's two-way. Take a little symbol of that. 
on a Monday morning. That'll get you out to work and witnessing again. What a hope. What a satisfaction. What a death. This isn't a death to be feared, is it? One of my own loved ones is dying at the moment with cancer in Scotland, and he said to my wife this week, I'm not afraid of death. I am afraid of the process, but I'm not afraid of death. And I think that's reality. Death's not. It's an enemy. It's horrible. It's agony to watch. We're not afraid of death itself, that moment, because as soon as he's gone, satisfied in every way. We overcome suffering by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end. I want to finish with this story. I don't know how I ended up on this, but I came across this video on YouTube called Brutally Honest Valedictorian Regrets Being Top of the Class. It's worth watching. Just look that up. Brutally Honest Valedictorian Regrets Being Top of the Class. Kyle Martin, 4.6 GPA, $170,000 of college scholarship. And he gave this speech at his valedictorian address called the 16th second, the 16th second. And in it, he talks about how he worked, stressed, and sacrificed to achieve this. And these are his words. At the senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It felt so good for about 15 seconds. 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won. 15 seconds of being at the top with all my accomplishments, and I felt euphoric. But there must come a 16th second. And on that 16th second, I sat down in my seat. I looked at my silver stole that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it. What just happened? Why am I not feeling anything else? To be honest, I don't even know what I was expecting, a parade of balloons to drop, or maybe I was hoping that all my problems would fade away in comparison to this amazing achievement, but none of that happened, not even in my heart. I felt nothing. I was shocked. This was a huge problem for me, and I needed to figure out why. So here was my thought process. This is a Christian, by the way. Working hard is good. It is, in fact, biblical. But it should not be done for the sole purpose of a goal's sake at the expense of relationship with others. Looking back on the year, I see that the goal of a five-minute speech and a stole around my neck was paid for at the expense of a lack of attending to relationships in my life. And then he says, what are you striving for? What's your be-all or end-all? I'm glad that I only made this mistake for only one year. What have I learned this at age 50? Or the end of my life? Have no regret in your 16th second. And really, that's what the psalmist is saying. 
You can have your 15 seconds of fame and fortune in this world, but there's a 16th second. Have no regret in your 16th second. Have no regret in that second after you die. What are you living for? Limited satisfaction here or future total satisfaction guaranteed? Look ahead to that day. What a day it will be. Imagine what it will be like. And as the song says, I can only imagine. But imagine nonetheless. It's going to exceed our wildest imaginations. It will not disappoint. Overcome suffering by sampling the total satisfaction guaranteed at the end. Let's pray. All satisfying Lord and God, we thank You for the gospel that not only transforms this life, but the life to come. Help us so to live that we do not regret our sixteenth second. Help us so to live that verse 14 will not be our experience, but rather verse 15. In Jesus' name, amen.